You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Or if you would, please turn in the Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, just reach out in front of you and lay hold of a pew Bible nearby or get it open on your phone. And uh, we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 2. Our scripture text today is Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 through 26. And uh, this is uh, the third sermon in our series on uh, making sense of of life. It's uh, wisdom for the real world from Ecclesiastes. And really what it is, is, is we're seeing the book of Ecclesiastes is a journal of one man's search for satisfaction and fulfillment and really for meaning to make sense of life. And, uh, but he, he did this in, in a season in his life where he seemed to have wandered away from God. And he got away from God, and um, here he is looking back on that and recording his observations, what he saw, what he experienced, what he learned. And so therefore, there's lots of, lots of parts of Ecclesiastes that for us will sound funny, like sound strange. Is that in the Bible? Is it, am I reading this right? Yeah, you are. When you recognize the context, it helps you to see that there are things, there, there is a perspective that we'll see again and again that we're calling this under the sun perspective. Without God in the picture, here is what life is like. And we'll see some of that today. But we're also going to see some real hope today. We recognize that early on, he's really in a search for satisfaction. He sought it through a fulfillment, through intellectual pursuits. But for him, that, that just made things worse because the more he knew, the more he was aware of the miseries in this world and, and the, the problems in this world. So then, then he sought for fulfillment through pleasure and tried anything and everything he could get his hands on. Laughter, partying, uh, wine, women, amassing great personal wealth, achievement, and in the middle of chapter two, he came to the same conclusion he started with, that he was unsatisfied. All these things, if you remove God from the picture at the end of the day, it's all kind of empty and meaningless. So then he tells us, after having sought for fulfillment and pleasure, he sought for fulfillment elsewhere. And that's where we pick it up here in verse 12. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning at verse 12. He says, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Now I put madness and folly together as the same as the same thing. What he's going to do here? He's going to say, I, "I'm trying to find fulfillment, trying to find satisfaction. So I couldn't find it in pleasure. So maybe the answer, maybe the answer is in how you live. Like like maybe it matters how you live, and in that, in living a certain way, then I will find completion and happiness and meaning. So that's what I think he's doing here. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Now look at verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Oh, so maybe he's onto something here. It's like I'm, I'm seeing something here. This wisdom, living wisely, has some advantages. There's some goodness about it. Verse 14, he says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, which is a good place for them to be. But of course, he means it's a person who sees clearly. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. You see, living a certain way, it is good. There is a good way. Maybe I'm on to something here. I'm going to find meaning and fulfillment. But alas, look at the middle of verse 14. And yet, 
I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What, what event do you think he might be talking about? What do you think? We'll see, we'll see. Verse 15, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For, as, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So you see, that's the event, that's the thing that happens. Oh yeah, you can live wisely. You can live a life of wisdom and there's benefit in that. There's, there, there's some goodness in that. But at the end of the day, the wise person and the fool person and the foolish person, they've got the same outcome. They're going to die. Verse 17, he says, so I hated life. That's a strong phrase, isn't it? So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity, or it's empty, or meaningless. This also is vanity and a great evil. What's that, what has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. I love that word, vexation. It's problematic. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Ever have some sleepless nights lately? Toss and turn, toss. That's what he's talking about. This also is vanity. Now, now right about here, you could just think he's going to sit down and have a great big cry. But that's not what happens. It's actually kind of surprising what happens. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Notice, this also I saw is from the hand of God. <gasps> we can hear angels singing now. It's like, now, now God enters into the picture. If we're tracking through Ecclesiastes, we might be tempted to say, oh, where did he come from, teacher? Where did he come from? Because God has often been out of the picture, that under the sun perspective. But here he is mindful of God. We see the, the sun breaks through the clouds. There, there is a sun coming up on the horizon. And he sees there's something from the hand of God. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? Or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now that's what he's been looking for. That's what some of you are looking for. Joy, gladness, fulfillment, meaning. But, notice verse 26. So the one who pleases God, they get that, the wisdom, the knowledge, the joy. But to the sinner, or the one who persists in sin, to the one who will not submit to God, to the one who's far from God and not coming, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it 
to one who pleases God. This, that kind of living, this also is vanity, a meaningless, empty, and a striving after the wind. If you look closely at my driver's license, which I have here in my hand, the bottom here, there's a little X. The X means that I'm an exceptional driver. And if pulled over, should be given the benefit of the doubt. That's actually not what it means. Uh, I'm just kidding. What it actually means is that if I'm driving, I must be wearing corrective lenses. Uh, if you, if you, many of you know this, is that uh, I'm wearing, when you see me without glasses on, I'm wearing contact lenses. I've been wearing glasses since I was in grade one. Uh, the truth is, is that without glasses and without contacts, I can see perfectly fine anything that's within eight inches of my eyeballs. But you get any further from that, and everything gets really blurry and fuzzy, and I can't see very well at all. In fact, on occasion, if we go, if, if my, Leanne and the kids and I go to a water park of any kind, you know, like a, like a wave pool and water slides, there's always, I always have this little panic moment before everybody runs off, like, wait, wait, don't take off and leave me, because I won't be able to find you, right? Or if they do, I'm like, wait, I'll be right here, you come back and find me. And I will tell you this, I, I do not try to hold my wife's hand unless I am absolutely sure it is her because, you know, the eyes, they don't work so good. Now, as poor as my eyesight is, however, there's another kind of seeing that I do every day that's actually far more important that needs way more correction, and that is my perspective. That kind of seeing is really blurry apart from God Chuck Swindoll said this, he said, most of us have better sight than insight. There's nothing wrong with our vision, it's perspective that throws us a curve. You know, as fallen human beings, we are saddled with a skewed perspective. We've got a fuzzy outlook. Our understanding, our vision of God and what he's doing in this world and what really is true is blurry and, and because of uh, this a spiritual nearsightedness that we have because of the fall. Our perspective on life and on God needs correcting. And without that correcting, without those kinds of corrective lenses, we won't see straight. We won't see reality for what it is. But that begs the question, where, where do you get those kinds of lenses? I know where to get lenses to help me see you this morning, but where do I get lenses to fix my perspective? Where am I going to find that? Well, the answer I would say to you emphatically is the Word of God. Scripture is for us, among other things, corrective lenses to help us to see straight, to take the, a world that is blurry in terms of understanding what life is all about and helps us to see what it is all about. When it's fuzzy for us on our own to understand how God is working in the world and how to make sense of so much confusion and chaos, the Word of God brings things into clarity so that we can, we can see. And I think that this text is especially for that as well. Our passage here today, I believe, gives us some very important, vital perspective on life. It helps us to see things more accurately. There's, we're going to see here that there's three observations that Solomon makes that are true observations. But we're also going to see that then there is one crucial insight. So there's, there's three observations he makes that cause him trouble. 
and it's, it's really oppressive, and it's stressful for him thinking this through. But then we'll see he's got a, this, this moment of clarity and insight where he sees something. And then once he sees something, we're going to see that there's a big mistake that he was making that some of us might be making today. And I wonder, wonder what that might be. Well, we'll see. Let's, let's get to it. But let me start here with the three observations, looking at verses 12 to 23, three observations about life in this world. Number one, death is no respecter of persons. Death is no respecter of persons. You know what I mean by that, no respecter of persons? Like, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've achieved or what you've accomplished. The reality is, is that death is coming for you. You got a date with death. Happy Sunday. It's coming. That's something that really tears him up. We saw in verse 12, he talks about these two different lifestyles. There's a lifestyle of wisdom, and he's thinking maybe this is where we'll find meaning and fulfillment. And then there's this life of madness and folly or foolishness. A life of wisdom, it's, it's that, that person who, you know, they, they're going to work with their hands or they're going to engage their mind. They're going to be a, a thoughtful individual. This is a, a, a person who's a well-respected contributor, contributor to society. They're, they're a responsible person. They, they work hard. They try to make good decisions. They're the kind of person you want as a next-door neighbor. They're the, the kind of person you want coaching your kid's soccer team. They're, they're the kind of person you'd like to have in your school classrooms. They're, they're just a good upstanding person who tries to live smart, to live wisely, to live considerately, uh, as serving and, and being a wise person, making a difference, a positive difference, or at least trying to. That's sort of this, this wisdom, this life of wisdom. But then there's another way of rolling, and that is what he calls madness and folly. This is the person who's not any of those things. They're like, and I mean, why should I pursue a job? Why should I bother ordering my private life? I'm just here for a short time, so it may as well be a good time. And maybe they fold their hands and, and excuse themselves or evade responsibility, perhaps they're maybe a bit lazy or at least self-indulgent or maybe even self-centered. I used to have a T-shirt years and years ago that had said in big, bold letters, it said, do nothing, avoid criticism. And I kind of like, it was kind of funny. If I don't, you know, I don't get criticized when I do something, so do nothing and avoid criticism. Now, obviously, that would be the person, that the foolish person would wear that T-shirt. I don't have that shirt anymore, just so you know. But that's the life of wisdom and folly. So there's making a difference in this world, try to live smartly and thoughtfully, and then there's sitting back and eating cheesies. And there's nothing wrong with cheesies. But if that's your life, if that's a description of your life, that's the life of folly. Now, here's what he says. He's like, the life of wisdom is a good thing. We saw that, didn't we? In verse 13, then I saw there is, that there is uh, more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. It's, it's better to be able to see. He said, the wise person has his eyes in the head, but the, the fool walks in darkness. So he's like, in the moment... Right now, I'd tell you which is better. I will tell you, being a wise person, a life of wisdom, making a difference, contributing, trying to engage your mind and live life on purpose, that, that's the better way to go. But the problem is that it's only for a time that that seems to be beneficial. There comes a time when death happens. And then it doesn't matter if you've been a wise person or a foolish person. You both go into the hole, together. maybe not together in the same hole, but you're buried side by side. Not talking about spouses. I'm just saying that the wise person and the foolish person both go into the ground. 
And for Solomon, who I believe wrote this, this is enormously oppressive and upsetting. When you realize this, notice the end of verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. It's like he's lamenting this, crying it out, how the wise and the fool both die. And so what was his answer to that? What did he say about that? He says, I hated life. I tried to find meaning and fulfillment in how I live, but I found that it may matter for a season, but in the end, it don't make no difference. You're both going to die. So in a sense, it doesn't matter what you do. No matter what you do with your life, death will come upon you. You can be a good neighbor or you can be a swindler. You can, you can go out and try to make a difference in this world or you can sit back and do as little as possible. It makes no difference what you do. Death will find you. Death is no respecter of persons. Now, you see what I mean in Ecclesiastes? Like, we read this, you're like, is this, this is the Bible, isn't it? Let me just check. This is the Bible. Yes, he's making a true observation death is coming. That's true, isn't it? Second observation. <laughs> this is, it gets even worse. The fruit of your labor will go to someone else. It's like, so not only does the wise person die just like the fool, but all the achievements and the accomplishments and the accumulations of the wise person, they don't get to take it with them. It's left behind for someone else. And who knows what they're going to do with it. That's what he says in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, empty. The wise person accomplishes much achieves, is successful, but then they die and they, they can't take it with them. It goes to somebody else and what are they going to do? Now again, I've said a few times, I do think that the, the preacher here, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is Solomon. And I think about him and, you know, I wonder if Solomon had moments when he saw his son Rehoboam and wondered, I wonder how this is going to go. See, Rehoboam would be Solomon's successor to the throne. And I, I just wonder, even if this is Solomon, if he's writing this and looking at his boy, Rehoboam, handsome guy, he's got lots of smarts in his head, but he's also got a lot of dumb too. And maybe he sees him, you know, wandering around this teenage Rehoboam and sees him, you know, never gets out of bed until after 10 o'clock and, and wanders around and you try to tell him stuff. You try to teach him things like, oh, dad, you just don't get it. You just don't know. And he's like, he's just like, he doesn't really listen very well. And I mean, he's got brains in his head, but they're seldom used. And, and here he is, you know, pajamas and slippers is one o'clock in the afternoon, son. Why don't you get a paper route, something, make something of yourself. You Got to do something here. Let me show you how to run the books because one day this will be yours. But he's always on his phone. He's not really interested in what I'm doing. You just wonder. Does Solomon look at Rehoboam and have moments when he thought like this, thought, I've achieved so much. I've accomplished so much. But one of these days, it's going to go to Rehoboam. I don't know how that's going to go. Well, you can read your Bible and see how it did go. Rehoboam succeeded Solomon. And when he took the throne, Rehoboam uh, had a kingdom with unparalleled wealth, he had unparalleled power, and he squandered the majority of it. He squandered his father's empire. He ignored wise counsel. 
And the Bible says, 2 Chronicles 12, summarizes his life by saying he did evil and did not seek the Lord. In fact, it was so bad that Rehoboam was not king long when the country split. Now, in truth, in fairness, I would point out to you that that dividing of the kingdom was God's judicial sovereign judgment on his people because of sin that had happened in the kingdom. However, I think the point is still well made that there's lots of people that can achieve a lot of things and be really successful and really be a somebody and have and produce. But there's coming a time when they will no longer have any of that because you can't take it with you and the fruit of your labor, loved one, will go to someone else. You got some things you're proud of? You got some things that maybe you're keeping nice and clean? Some things you're tucking away and, tie, and, and keeping for future generations? Hopefully they'll use it wisely. Hopefully your wishes will be honored. But when that day comes, you ain't gonna be here. And this is part of the problem that he sees here, is that in this world, people accomplish so much. You'll leave it behind, though, to someone else who take what you've done, and maybe they'll make good on it, but maybe they'll squander it. Perhaps they'll manage it further, or perhaps they'll waste it and give it away to someone else. The fruit of your labor will go to somebody else. That's the second observation. The third observation is this. Troubles from our toil takes a toll on you over time. There's a lot of T's, but you hear what I'm saying? Troubles from our toil, from all your working, all your striving, all your strategizing, all your planning, all your saving, that creates troubles for you. Physical troubles, emotional troubles, mental troubles. Troubles from all of our toil takes a toll on us over time. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart at, with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. Another way that word could be rendered is full of pain. Talk to the custodian about the rotator cuff problems. Talk to, talk to the, the construction worker, the carpenter, who's got aches and pains all over their body. Or talk to the office worker who's got carpal tunnel syndrome and can't turn their head as far as they used to be able to from sitting in that office chair all the time. You talk to them and they'll tell you about the truth of this verse. Their days are full of sorrow and, and pain. Or, or shift workers who just can't get enough. You can't sleep as good in the daytime as you can at night. And what's that doing to your health? Well, the studies say, not doing good for you, but you need the income, so you gotta go back to it. But this is what he's talking about. Sorrows, pain. Every day is filled with vexation. And, the work, and his work is vexation. I love that word. It means problems. Problems. You've experienced vexation lots of you this week. How about a miscommunication? No, what I told you was this. No, that's not what you said. I'm, I'm certain that you said this. No, that's not what I said. No, I was there and you said something else altogether. You ever had those kinds of situations? Miscommunications or miscalculations. Oh, the decimal point goes here, not here. Oh, okay. Well, that costs us $1,000. Or... Other problems like just, just the people you sometimes got to deal with. Vexation, problems. And how about sleepless nights? Even in the night, the heart does not rest. Many nights, you know this, many of you, you know that lights, nights are taken up with the lack of sleep because of a lack of peace. When you know, when you know that tomorrow you got to go in and lay somebody off, 
when you know the finances are thin, when you're unsure of your future in your current job, when you got to go back and endure another day under that boss, all kinds of things keep us awake at night. So he's like, yeah, you strive and you achieve and you work and you accumulate and you're successful, but it all comes with a cost. Our, the troubles from our toil takes a toll on us over time. And how do you feel about this, Solomon? Well, he says, here's how I feel. The end of verse 23, this also is vanity. It's empty. It's meaningless. Oh yeah, people will applaud me and take selfies with me. And will say lots of good things about me. But generations from now, they'll forget about you. And the reality is, you could look back on your dying day and say, what was it all for? What was it all for? Three observations. Death is no respecter of persons. The fruit of your labor will go to somebody else. Troubles from our toil takes a toll on us physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally over time. Now, it's right about this point that you could just almost anticipate that the teacher's going to stand up from his journal writing and just flip his desk or maybe just sit down and just have a huge cry and weep over the sorrow of this and the misery of this. And, and who could blame him? It would be understandable. But the funny thing is, is that's not what happens. And if we're reading through Ecclesiastes, if we're tracking through, we're probably actually a little surprised at what we read in the next paragraph. Because really for the first time, really in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a glimmer of hope. And there's a, there's a ray of sunshine breaking through. There's, there's something said here about God that's encouraging, that intersects with the life of this person. Verse 24, he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. Now, there's, there's two different ways you can read that. You can read that and say, Oh, there's nothing better, so just try to make the most of it, okay, and we'll get through. That could be one reading of it. I don't think that's what he means, though. I think instead what is happening is he's gaining, he's regaining here, vitally important insight and perspective. He's seeing, for, he's seeing finally beginning to see the difference it makes when you have God at the center of your life and not off in the distance. When you got God in the center of your life, all of a sudden things begin to look a little different and there actually is enjoyment in things that otherwise might seem vexing or troubling. He says in verse 24, there's, there's nothing better. He doesn't mean there's no, it's just a consolation prize, but I think it's a statement of fact that alongside the sorrows and frustrations of this life, there's also genuine joys to be experienced, and these are from God. And in experiencing good things in this life, it's a place, it's an arena in which we experience the goodness of God. So he sees, he sees for a moment here, it's not all bad. In fact, there's lots of good when God's in the picture. That changes things. Notice what he says in verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given, notice, wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now that's what he's been after since the beginning of the book. Back when he was crying out, meaningless, meaningless, absolutely futile, everything is futile, vanity of vanities. Back when he was on that point, this is what his heart had been aching and crying out for was a breakthrough where he sees, do you know something? If you've got God, then you got it. 
You found life. God gives, he says, when you trust God, when you love him, when you worship him, he gives you lasting, enduring spiritual gifts that last beyond the grave, that carry you through now and last beyond the grave, like wisdom, wisdom from God, wisdom to see what really needs to be seen, that without God's help we don't see, and see, and knowledge, knowledge, I believe, specifically of God. Knowing him, Jesus said, this is eternal life, knowing God, knowing him. And then he uses this word joy. That's that deep, abiding, everlasting satisfaction that my heart is longing for. It's the fulfillment. It's the, it puts the meaning over the word meaningless. Meaning, meaning. That's when I have God. I think at this point in the book, we're seeing this crucial insight, namely that your life finds its fullest meaning in God. Your life finds its fullest meaning, or another way of saying it could be your life finds its true meaning, its real meaning, its ultimate meaning in God. You take him out of the picture, the best you will do is find meaning for yourself. Our culture is all over that. This is my truth. Listen, the reality is you read the Bible, you see there is truth. There is truth and truth is truth. It's not my truth and your truth. It's just truth. And the reality here is he's like, if you want, if you want to find it, you want to find meaning, fulfillment, reality, it comes in relationship to God. Your life finds its true meaning, its ultimate meaning, its fullest meaning in him. I love how, this, this, how this, this verse goes because he shows us that in relation to God, there is indeed fulfillment. And of course, when we hear the words of Jesus, we, we, we track with this guy through and we can see the problem he's having. He's like, I'm observing that death is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what you've achieved, accomplished, or how you lived your life, you're going to die. You live a good life, you live a bad life, it doesn't matter. It's the same outcome. That bothers him. And then he's, he's bothered by the fact that everything he's achieved will go to someone else. And then uh, he's also bothered by the fact that all along the way, it can be pretty miserable at times and restless and painful and hard. And so all this gets to him and he's like, I, it gets me to the point where I hate life. But all of a sudden, I remember God and I look to him. And when you think about what Jesus teaches us, think about what Jesus teaches us. We go from this perspective of I, I work, I labor, I strive, and I end up in the grave and somebody else has got it. But listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 5, he said, Blessed are the meek. Now, the meek are those who are humble before God, who, who have humble faith in God, who trust in him. It's a believer. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, what, anybody know? They shall inherit the earth. Now, I got thinking about it. Like, if you inherit the earth, what is the inheritance of a child of God? The answer, everything. It's all yours. It's all yours. This is the enjoyment of God in eternal life, is that we have full, unfettered fellowship with Jesus, and he throws in as icing on the cake everything else. Everything. It's a gift to you. You'll inherit the earth. So you see, to the one who loves God, 
It's not in vain, your life. That's why Paul could say that, that when you serve the Lord, our labors for him are not in vain because they don't end at the grave. There's eternal value in it when it's done for him. And not only are we doing it for the worship of God in this life, but beyond this life, in eternity, he gives to us this great, glorious inheritance of everything. So we don't actually really leave anything behind. When you know Jesus, you get it all back in eternity and a gajillion fold at that. Do you see? This is the difference. Your life will find its true and ultimate meaning when you put God in the picture. You put God out of the picture and any of this makes sense. And it's despairing, which he sees. In fact, that's what he says in verse 26. He, he lands on that word joy for the person who trusts God and loves God. But then notice what he says. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give, one, only to, give to one who pleases God. This, that kind of life, is vanity, empty, and a striving after the wind. So you see, the critical insight is that your life finds its ultimate true meaning in relationship with God. Do you understand that? Do you understand that God made you? He, the Bible says he knit you together in your mother's womb. Who did that? God did that. He made you, and he made you to be a bearer of his image. He made you to know him and to love him. That's what you are for. That's why you're here. For him. And that's where you're going to find fulfillment. That's where you're going to find satisfaction. That's where you're going to find life is in relationship to him. The author of Ecclesiastes, his biggest problem is that he went on a journey away from God thinking there was maybe more to be found elsewhere. And what he discovered is that there wasn't. And so he comes back to this crucial insight. Your life and mine finds its fulfillment, its fullest meaning in God. Question, loved one. Do you understand that? And do you believe that? Do you see that? Is God by his spirit right now putting lenses on the eyes of your heart to see that my life is for him? And if I want true joy, true fulfillment, if I want life for real, it's got to be in relationship to him. I think that's the crucial insight of this text. I think it also, now at this point, helps us to see what the, his big mistake was. There was a really big mistake he had been making that up to this point, I think, was maybe just kind of a little foggy, but now it's fully exposed. See, he was really torn up and upset about the fact that, you know, I work, I earn, I achieve, and then I die, and it just goes to somebody else. That was, you saw that, right? That was really tearing him up. That was really bothering him, really upsetting him. But here, now we see that, oh, but, but wait, but wait, when I got a relationship with God, now my life finds its fulfillment and meaning, and yes, I will labor and toil, and there's frustration and hardship along the way, but in the end, when I got God, I've got purpose and meaning, and in Jesus, we know we get it all back in the end anyway. So, so now we see, we see what his problem was. He was taking things that in and of themselves aren't bad, in fact, things that in and of themselves are good, like work and creativity and effort and earning and achievement 
receiving and serving, all kinds of good things. The problem he was having is a problem some of maybe you are having, is that he was taking those good things and seeing them as ultimate things and then being frustrated by the letdown and the disappointment. That's the big mistake that he was making, and I think that's a big mistake a lot of people are making in this life. One big mistake, seeing good things as ultimate things. By ultimate things, I mean making good things the main thing in your life. God's the main thing. He's the main thing. You make other things the main thing, you're taking what might be inherently good and making it ultimate. But only God is ultimate. When we make good things and ultimate things, we tend to find our sense of identity and sense of purpose and sense of worth and fulfillment in things that are not made to do that. There are places where we're to encounter the goodness of God, not find our ultimate worth and meaning. Because the reality is, is that when we make good things into ultimate things, we're really setting ourselves up for problems. In fact, there's three problems with this. One, when we see good things as ultimate things, the good things spoil in our pursuit of them. Take, for example, work. There is enjoyment in certain kinds of work. There are some kinds of work that you will not convince me there's any enjoyment in. But generally speaking, there is enjoyment in different kinds of work. Work is not a curse. When we read the Bible, we see that work was there before the fall. Work was a good thing. In some ways, part of Adam's, really, Adam being a person made in God's image involved working. God had made all that there is and gave responsibility to Adam and then to Eve to, to care for what God had made. Work is a good thing. It's a blessing. It's basically good. But here's the thing. Work is not an ultimate thing. You can take satisfaction in a job well done. You can enjoy the benefits of having worked hard. You can be grateful and enjoy the provision that that work provides. But when that becomes your identity, when you begin to draw your sense of worth from what you do, you're taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. And when you do that, it will spoil in your pursuit of it. Like it will seem sweet. It will hold out hope for you that this will satisfy. But when you get there, all you'll find is the grave. Like chasing after the wind. And the result will be the more you pursue that and expect a fulfilling return from it and are disappointed, you'll become embittered about it. You'll become defeated as a parent. You'll be discontented no matter what you're doing or where you are because you just can't seem to be happy because you're trying to find your happiness in that which is not meant to make you happy. God is meant to make you happy. When we see good things as ultimate things, one of the biggest problems is that the good things spoil in our pursuit of them. Second problem, when you see good things as ultimate things, we forget that the good things are not ultimate things. Like we try to, we begin to treat them as what they aren't. They aren't made for that. Kohileth or Solomon or the author of Ecclesiastes, he begins to realize that joy, joy actually comes from God. Apart from him, I don't have true joy. Good things in life are good because they're places where I experience God's blessing and his goodness. But when I take it to be the thing that will fulfill me and make me glad, I'm making it something that it isn't. 
Imagine this. Imagine you go to visit a friend of yours, and they seem very flustered and upset, and you inquire about why they're in such a tizzy. And they say, well, it's my cat. So you look at the feline, ignoring everybody and licking its paws. You're like, what's wrong with the cat? I've had this cat for eight years, and it won't bark. I want my cat to bark, and it won't. And what's worse is the dog. Because the dog, who's licking your leg and wagging your tail and saying, pet me, pet me, the dog won't meow. I mean, I've had the dog for nine years, and it won't meow. It'll bark its head off, but it'll never meow. Now, you might encourage that person to have a seat and maybe have a glass of water. And then you'd remind them of the most obvious thing in the world. The reason your cat doesn't bark is because it wasn't made to bark. It was made to meow. And your dog, your dog was made to bark. Dogs are really good at barking. Not good at meowing. It's not made for that. That's not how they're made. It's not their purpose. Here's the thing. I think that lots of times we get into this, we try to make things into what they are not. Good things are not ultimate things. It's as crazy as going home today and getting, giving away your cat because it won't bark. It's not gonna. That's not what it is. It's not what it's for. Your job, your parenting, your athletic prowess, your intellectual sharpness are blessings from God through which you experience his kindness. But if you expect that those things are going to fulfill you, you're expecting them to do something that they're not made to do. When good things, when you see good things as ultimate things, you forget that good things are not ultimate things. I would say, too, that this, this is instructive for us in marriage. Sometimes husbands and wives become disappointed in each other because they feel like they're not meeting all their needs. You're not meeting my needs. Now, there may be things that need to be addressed. There may be issues. I'm not ignoring that or minimizing that. But sometimes there is an expectation we put on our marriage partner, our husband, our wife, where we think they should be for us what only God can be. Remember a number of weeks ago when I was teaching on marriage, I used that illustration from that movie, I think it was Jerry Maguire, somebody told me afterwards, and where, where it's supposed to be this romantic scene where somebody says to their lover, you complete me. And you remember what I said at the time? That's a terrible thing to say to somebody. Don't ever say that to somebody you care about. You complete me. They don't complete you. If they buy it, they are taking on themselves an impossible burden because there's only one who can complete you. It's the one who made you, and it's God. It's not that person. Yes, there's to be enjoyment. Yes, there's to be unity in that marriage relationship. But we saddle our spouse with expectations that only God can fulfill. Turning something good, like my marriage, into something ultimate. Forgetting that good things are not ultimate things. That's the second thing. When we see good things as ultimate things, the good things spoil in our pursuit of them. We forget that good things are not ultimate things. Finally, when we see good things as ultimate things, we make for ourselves a date with disappointment. It's only a matter of time before you're let down. 
and you will overhear yourself, even in the quietness of your heart, quoting Ecclesiastes 2 and 17, I hate life. So I hated life. Because what was done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. See, when we see good things as ultimate things, we make for ourselves a date with disappointment. Through verses 12 to 23, he's looking for a life of wisdom, a lifestyle of accumulating and achieving as his place of satisfaction and really as a source of his identity. But these things are not stable, reliable foundations for that. Many people link their identity, their sense of self from what they do. Sometimes this comes out really subtly. It's like, you know, you, you want to get to know somebody, so a, kind of a, an easy question to ask is, what do you do? What do you do? And I'm not down on that. It's, it's a good way to break the ice and make conversation and get to know the other person. But it is funny to me, though, that it is a common starting place when we want to get to know someone and find out who this person is that we begin by talking about our work or our occupation. Tell me about yourself. Often begins with, well, here's what I do. Now, don't go editing your conversations, but just beware of what sometimes we might subtly be doing in our hearts, linking our sense of self with my ability and the tasks that are before me. Tim Keller said this. I think it's insightful. He said, in more traditional cultures, the sense of worth and identity comes from fulfilling duties to family and giving service to society. In our contemporary individualistic culture, we tend to look at our accomplishments, our social status, our talents, and our love relationships, right, as our sense of identity. There are an infinite variety of identity bases. Some get their sense of self from gaining and wielding power, others from human approval, others from self-discipline and self-control. But, listen to this, but identity apart from God is inherently unstable. Without God, our sense of worth may seem solid on the surface, but it never is. It can desert you in a moment. Let me show you what I mean. Y'all know the game Jenga? You know Jenga. You take a block from the middle and you put it on top. You take a block from the bottom and you put it on top. You know this game, how it works. You play it with a partner, you get in this game. And thank you very much. The young people set this up for me. I'm grateful for that. And uh, so here's how it works. If you're playing somebody, you know, you kind of you go really, really gentle. And I probably don't play by the rules properly because I touch more than one block. But you take a block here and then you put it on top. And then it's their turn. And, uh, and they do the same thing. You want to really try to be careful, though, because if you knock it over, you lose. It's one of them there games. There's no real winners. It's just about losers. And so, so you do that. Now, think about what we're seeing here in Ecclesiastes 2. Good things becoming ultimate things. When I try to build my sense of worth and even identity from maybe my work, that can be good for a season. You can feel fairly fulfilled in your job, in your workplace, but then, but then you retire. And then where are you at? Or maybe you're an athlete and you've got athletic prowess, but then you suffer an injury, a serious injury. And all of a sudden, this good thing it's not so good anymore. 
Or maybe, and here's where it gets real sensitive. This, we're going to the dentist on this one. Maybe your sense of worth and fulfillment comes from being a parent and your kids. And your kids are beautiful. And parenting is really important. No question. But what happens? What happens when those kids grow up and move away? Or what happens when they rebel against you? And the little life that you've, the little identity you've built for yourself as a parent all of a sudden isn't sustaining you anymore. All of a sudden, this here was, well, it was really stable, but it's not anymore. When good things become ultimate things, when you build your life and your sense of worth and fulfillment on good things, you are making them ultimate things. And that becomes a very unstable base for your life. Because trouble's coming. And if you put the weight of your expectations and your hopes on what you're able to do, on what you're able to think, on what you're able to achieve, on what you have, on what you possess, on your position, and even on your family, when you put your sense of identity and worth, you put the full weight of it on those things. You make for yourself a date with disappointment because disappointment is coming because it's just for a limited time. It's a very unstable foundation. Identity, fulfillment, sense of self cannot be rooted in good things. It must be rooted in the ultimate thing. And that's God. Finding our sense of self in him. Let me ask you, dear brothers and sisters, let me ask you this question. It's a bit personal, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there an area of your life where you have or you are making a good thing into an ultimate thing? Like this, trying to find, remember I talked about that God-sized hole in your heart, trying to fill that hole with something that's not made for that. Will you this morning ask God for his corrective lenses to see? To see that only he is ultimate? Remember, dear Christian, remember that in Jesus, in Jesus, there is no disappointment in the end. You will encounter disappointments on the way. But what might appear to be the grandest disappointment of all, like we've seen in Ecclesiastes 2, the grave, actually in Jesus becomes a gateway into glory. And actually, in Jesus, all of your striving and achieving and accumulating, when it's done for him and his glory and his fame, well, you know that in the end, you've got a great inheritance coming to you. You will inherit, Jesus says, the earth. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but because he's your savior. And he promises, God the Father promises this to his children Dear brother and sister, in Jesus, there is no disappointment in the end. You need to root your sense of self and worth, not in what you do or what you have or what you think you will do or can do, but finding your identity and personhood in the true identity that is yours, that you are a child of God. You are, you are a blood-bought, adopted child of God. You are his sons. You are his daughters. Jesus is our elder brother. You belong to him. This is, this is who you are. You are, when you read the Bible in the New Testament, you notice that again and again, believers are called saints. 
Saint. Why are we called saints? We're called saints because that's our identity. That's who you are when you are blood-bought sheep. When your sins are forgiven, you become, you're called a saint. That's your identity. It doesn't mean that you're, you're all pristine, but in Jesus, you are. That's who you are. Your sense of worth has to come from him, not from what you can achieve and accomplish because it's, it's the Jenga blocks, baby. It's going to come down eventually. Your sense of worth must come from God because he is the one that doesn't change. He is the one who's eternal. Your sense of joy and sense of fulfillment cannot come merely from the things that I do. There is enjoyment in doing. There is enjoyment in achieving. But it's enjoyable because it's the place in which we experience the goodness and grace of God that afforded it to us in the first place. It's there that we encounter him in the parenting, him in the marriage, him on the sports field, him in the workplace, him in the bank account, him in your beautiful backyard. That's a gift from him. That's your experience. You step out of that and you're like, I don't deserve any of this. And you lift your eyes to heaven and there's your fulfillment in your yard and your car and your education and your achievements, whatever they are or aren't, are just reflections of his amazing grace toward you. Because if you really get it, you know, you don't deserve any of it and neither do I. Will you remember this? Will you fix your eyes on God? And loved ones, will you, will you stop? Stop trying to make what even may be inherently good things into ultimate things. Too many believers are getting too frustrated trying to achieve, trying to fix things that are beyond their control when the reality is, is that your sense of security and worth and fulfillment must come from God. It's something you don't achieve. Listen, something you don't achieve, it's something you receive from him. So I guess what I'm saying to you is stop striving after the wind. And I would say finally to the person maybe who is considering Jesus, is thinking about the Christian message and you've maybe heard some things today maybe you didn't expect to hear in church. I just want you to understand what believers know that when you receive Jesus, wonder of wonders, he brings us to God. He brings us into that relationship with him where you receive what your heart longs for. Fulfillment, acceptance, purpose, joy. Jesus brings you into that. Jesus said, he said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Question, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you really ultimately want? Life, abundant life. Isn't that what you need? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and you will find not striving after the wind, but rest, rest for your souls. Let's pray together.